This message is brought to you by Mill City Church in Lowell, Massachusetts. For more information, please visit millcitychurch.net. My plan is actually to get us going with sort of a dramatic question. Um, It's an important question, but it's one that I think will really help us set the stage for the remaining studies that we have this summer, as Chris was alluding to. So the question is, what do you want your last words to be? Maybe you've thought about it before. Maybe you haven't. Um, It's not meant to be like a really morbid thought. It's more of a curious one. So think about it with me. Your last words. These are words that you will communicate, probably coherently for the last time, to people who know you, to people who look up to you, to people who love you. Uh, These are the words that will emphasize what you lived for, um, what you cared about, the things that you really learned to value most in life. And in a time where we've really all been reminded that life comes and goes in a breath, what would your last words be? And who would you want to give them to? And what kind of impact would you want to make on those around you? As Chris mentioned, this morning we're beginning a new series in the book of 2 Timothy. And this book is significant because it contains the last known words of the Apostle Paul. And furthermore, it's significant because in studying these last words, uh, we get a clear picture of what it means to know Jesus and to follow him faithfully. And so to set the scene for this new series, I want to provide us with some brief reminders about the context of this book so that we can better interpret what we read. And so starting at the top of your notes, you'll see uh, an overview of this New Testament book. Number one, it's personal. It's personal. So 2 Timothy is not some distant religious text. It was a handwritten letter written from the Apostle Paul himself to this young, uh, meek pastor named Timothy. And Paul was present for essentially all of the major Christian milestones in young Timothy's uh, life, including his first years as a Christian, eventually his ordination as a pastor. And Paul had invested so much time and energy into Timothy over two decades that Paul considered him, uh, Timothy, a true child in the faith. So Paul is writing to a younger man that he had poured so much life and so much love into that Paul, this single unmarried man, considered himself a father, right? Not by traditional blood types, but by the blood of Christ. Timothy was his son. So this book is deeply personal. Next, this book is purposeful. It's purposeful because Paul is about to die. He has been arrested for the last time in his life for sharing the gospel. Um, At this time, Christianity is perhaps on a brink of extinction, some felt. And his dire hope and belief is that Timothy can be the one he can trust to protect the gospel that he has risked his life for. And so Paul's jail cell here uh, is kind of lonely. It's been described as a dismal underground dungeon with a hole in the ceiling for light and air. He's all alone. He's sort of weak and decaying here. And all he can do is sit here and write letters. He can pray and ultimately await his final major life event, which is his execution for being a Christian. 
And with that earthly fate flickering in his eyes, Paul writes this letter as a last will and testament to young Timothy. It's his last will and testament to strengthen the church and equip Timothy for the hard and messy, yet joyful and eternally rewarding work of being a minister in God's church. So this book is purposeful. Lastly, 2 Timothy is practical. It's practical because, yes, it was penned in a dark, lonely jail cell 2,000 years ago, but the application of these words is still life-giving. These words are timeless. They're true. And so as we cover a wide breadth of topics like the challenging work of leading a church, the importance of the word, the value of godliness, the significance of leading by example, we will be equipped as Christians more and more to make the most of our faith and the opportunities to exercise it in the world around us. So this book is personal, it is purposeful, and it is completely practical for us today. And with that sort of light uh, overview, if you're ready to study God's word with me, you can open to 2 Timothy chapter 1. And as you do that, um, let me tell you that our central focus this morning will be on leadership. And I think this is a great topic because I believe Christian leadership overlaps heavily with Christian witness. So the principles are easily transferable and uh, we'll learn about leadership, but it should also serve to strengthen our witness as well, especially as scripture plainly tells us repeatedly to imitate our leaders. And even if you don't see yourself as a leader this morning, I think you'll learn at least what, what you can value in a leader, and that's really important too. For instance, being a Christian leader doesn't mean being a CEO or a clinical psychologist. Those skills can help, but there's something deeper that undergirds gospel-centered leadership, and that's what we're studying this morning. So picking up in verse 1, this is what we read. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and now in your mother Eunice, and now, I'm sure, dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And we'll stop there. There's great truth for us this morning in these opening verses. And so to break down some of what's happening here, we are going to be honing in on three characteristics of gospel-centered leaders that this passage describes. And the first notable thing about gospel-centered leaders is this. They depend on the gospel. They depend on the gospel. We can actually get a clear sense of this by looking at how Paul opens this letter. He says, Paul, an apostle, so that's his name, Paul, which we'll talk more about in a second, and apostle, that's his role. And what's critical to point out here is the contrast for first century readers, Timothy would have known this, when they see Paul, 
who many regarded with mixed feelings, and then apostle together in one sentence. Because Paul, as an apostle, had a unique responsibility to perfectly articulate the message of salvation and then to equip the church to declare and defend that message for the rest of human history. And that's, I don't know about you, that's a tall order. But if you didn't know Paul, you might think, well, he must have like a, re- a really clean record, a great man with just an all-around great reputation, just a real shoo-in from the, go- from the <laughs> real shoo-in for the job from the start. He's just a solid fit. But if being a Christian leader was dependent on track records here alone, well, then Paul was not a good fit. Because many of you would know he didn't start life as a defender of Christianity, he started life as a destroyer of it, right? He was born into the most privileged and pomp Jewish bloodline. Paul was designated to be a leading ambassador of Judaism and was educated in the premier system of Jewish learning. He was a fierce Jewish leader, and he was so confident and so zealous for his beliefs that when he first encountered Christianity, his gut reaction was to obliterate it, to literally hunt Christians down by the sword, make them blaspheme, separate their families, and he did it all in the, in, in the name of ideological purity. He would do anything for the cause. He was known for, quote, in the Bible, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. So he was literally responsible for the death of other Christian leaders. So you can imagine how jarring it would be to read Paul, that guy, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And we might say, well, who approved that decision? Seems like kind of an executive oversight. And in verse 1, we find the answer. An apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. God made that decision. And then it's, it's natural to ask, well, how could God possibly make that decision? How could he justify that? That the leading Christian hater would become a Christian leader. Paul answers back plainly, God made this decision according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. God justified his decision to make Paul a leader in the church when Paul trusted in Jesus for new life. That that is the promise that Jesus paid for his sins on the cross and could redeem his hell-bound life for a heaven-bound one, becoming a man of peace and mercy and wisdom and love. Paul hadn't been looking for a new job. He wasn't on a journey to discover himself. No, God intervened into Paul's angry war path and said, I'm saving you to myself, and I know exactly how I'm going to use you. And therefore, Paul depended on the gospel alone as his qualification to serve God. Yet, if you know about Paul, he didn't just depend on the gospel for qualification, but he completely depended on it for motivation to serve God. Because almost everywhere he goes, though some respond positively, uh, most, many don't. And people hate him, and they hate his faith, they hate his message, they hate his Savior. And over and over, he's rejected, cast out, whipped, beaten, stoned, shipwrecked, robbed, flogged, homeless, sleepless, hungry and thirsty, cold and naked, destitute, abandoned by all his friends, betrayed by those he had invested in, imprisoned, battling depression, and within, within a year of writing this letter, Paul is beheaded, martyred with the rest of the prisoner Christians in Rome, as tradition holds. 
If Paul depended on popularity or prosperity or even happiness, that would have never been enough to motivate him in service to God. But he had something, right? He had something that the world couldn't take from him and that he would never give up. And it was the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. Even in his suffering, he knew how good this promise was, that just as God's will had drawn him in Christ, God's will was to sustain him in Christ, such that no matter what, as verse 2 states, there was grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. We could all use that. We all need that. I don't know where this opening truth finds you this morning, but see the gospel here. Maybe you feel that your past invalidates you to witness or to participate. That's not true. In Christ, God doesn't hold anything against you. You're not, you're not some second-class member. The gospel is what qualifies you. Or maybe you're beat up. You feel sluggish and slow. Know that God isn't indifferent towards that. He cares about your pain. He cares to hold you through it. And so with the gospel as your motivation, trust him to lead you through it, to work inside and motivate you to live for him again emphatically. The point being, wherever we are, we can follow Paul's lead. Gospel-centered leaders depend on the gospel. Secondly, gospel-centered leaders reciprocate investment. They reciprocate investment. Obviously, to reciprocate something means to return something that you've been given. Right? It's to give back. And so reciprocating implies that you give of yourself, yes, but also that you receive of others as well. You welcome and you seek out opportunities to be invested in. And we don't need to look any further than young Pastor Timothy's own life and ministry to grasp this because similar to Paul, and actually like all of us, Timothy didn't start life as a pastor or a Christian for that matter. He required significant investment to get where he ended up. In fact, Timothy didn't really have a lot of natural leadership uh, or natural strength qualities. First of all, he was very young, only about 20 years old when he got to um, seriously grapple with who Jesus was and whether he would follow him. Timothy came from parents who apparently were not on the same page about values or lifestyle. And as a result, it's likely that Timothy's relationship with his dad was, was not very strong. Lacking a father figure who could guide him in the faith for at least the 20, uh, first 20 years of his life. And on top of it all, Timothy was prone to illness. He suffered from, quote, frequent ailments, and it deeply concerned people in his circles. And lastly, he was just kind of a timid guy. Like, we would probably label him as an introvert. Um, and evidently, he fought this sort of repeated temptation to run away uh, from hard and inconvenient circumstances, the kind of person who naturally avoided opportunities uh, to uh, be responsible for others and shrink back from tasks that required difficult sacrifices. And I'm certain I'm not alone in saying I can relate to wanting to run away from responsibility. Yet Paul, actually just like Paul, Timothy's encounter and dependence on the gospel led him to voluntarily adopt wide responsibilities to invest in the church and in others. 
And this was no small thing because in his tenure, he needed to combat heretical teaching, to guard the church against chaotic worship, to select and ordain future church leaders, to organize a ministry for taking care of widows, and of course, to preach the gospel faithfully, right? To uh, receive what Paul was trying to pass on for it to be preserved in Timothy and then to pass that on to the future generations. And so how? How did Timothy specifically get from point A of being a baby Christian to point B as a critical gospel-centered leader who reciprocated investment? And the answer is that he received investment. Another way of saying it is that gospel-centered leaders are shaped by others. They are shaped by others. And it's really all throughout this letter, but even if you start in verse 3, Paul says, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. So Timothy's uh, good character and his behavior were shaped by others, starting with his family. Right? Even though he particularly couldn't rely on his father, who was Greek, to raise him in the faith, his mom and grandma were still both faithful Jews who labored to uh, teach Timothy God's word and to pass on the faith. And this apparently primed him to receive the gospel when he finally had the chance to first hear it. So we see him shaped by his family. We also see Timothy shaped by good Christian mentors and friends. Paul cites himself as someone who's been there for Timothy in the most important of times, having taken him on many missionary journeys throughout the ancient world. They would have done a lot of ordinary things together, just sharing meals, hanging out, traveling, uh, recreation. But they also endured deeper and harder times together. Paul can say that, yeah, he's been there through the laughing, but also through the crying as he, quote, remembers Timothy's tears. And so Timothy had mentors who really got to know him and friends uh, who'd look out for him and seek the best for him. We also see Timothy shaped by prayer. This is not a small thing. Paul says, I remembered you constantly in my prayers night and day. And so Paul believes that prayer is fundamental. Uh, it's a fundamental way that he can partner with God and and shape Timothy, even when he's not, uh, doesn't have the opportunities to be with Timothy, like physically in person. And that brings us to the last point of influence we see from this passage. In verse 3, Paul acknowledges the foremost and ultimate investor in Timothy's life when he says, I thank God. I thank God as I remember you. And Paul says this because God is the ultimate shaper of people. God can revive and shape human hearts through the gospel. He can shape minds through his word. He can shape attitudes through trials and through victories. He can shape our habits through school or through our work and our character through prayer or through spiritual disciplines. He shapes every part of our lives through a wide variety of means. Yet at the core, God is the ultimate source of this shaping. And yes, among the numerous ways he shapes us to follow Christ and to reciprocate investment is through others, through mentors and fellow members of the household of God. And so gospel-centered leaders are shaped by others. Now, as a result, gospel-centered leaders go on to shape others. 
they go on to shape others. When you invest in a gospel-centered leader, they dish that back out. Hours and days and years of investment yield gratitude and grace, faith, proactivity, all these things in their lives. And that's not to say they're never a burden, right? We all bring burdens into this because we're sinners. But it is to say that they are people who grow and give back. And so uh, in Acts, for instance, as a result of being invested in, Timothy soars in his faith. And it says that he becomes well-spoken of and well-thought of by a majority of Christian brothers and sisters in the surrounding area. He voluntarily decides as he grows to accompany Paul on missionary journeys and sees Paul love and lead others to Christ. And Timothy takes ownership to do the same. And he even goes on to do it in his own time. Over the next 10 years, Timothy is ordained as a pastor to serve in some really difficult churches apart from Paul, yet he remains faithful in his duties and devotion to the gospel. In verse 4, we read, he's a relief to be around. Right? Paul says, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. And by the end of his life, it's been estimated that he led and served in five different churches and possibly more throughout ancient Greece. So Timothy got it. Timothy didn't see Christian ministry as relegated to only the Christian elite or the Ivy League pastors or even just the perfect fits. He gave back as best as it was left up to him a little more of himself every year. And it's because of his intentional reciprocation of gospel investment that we have a gospel to believe and share here today. Timothy played a part in that. And so as Paul looks back on Timothy's life, he looks back at what he gave Timothy and how it multiplied through Timothy and then to others. And in verse 3, he says it was entirely worth it. He feels good about it. I thank God, he says, with a clear conscience as I remember you. No regrets, right? It paid off for Paul. The mission of God was advanced, and Paul gained a son through it all. And this son, young Timothy, was left with an imperishable and invaluable reward, a sincere faith. Paul says with utter contentment in verse 5, I'm reminded of your sincere faith. This is not, as a reminder, some distant, archaic text. Brothers and sisters, this is for you and me. A sincere faith is for you and me in Christ because you are not beyond shaping this morning. It doesn't matter if you are new at this or old at this. In Christ, God wills to shape you through whatever past or pain or predicament. He will love you and he will shed tears for you and he will long for you. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, he will shape you into a person of grace, mercy, peace, clear conscience, and sincere faith. And he accomplishes this in no small part through the loving investment of others. If you've never experienced this, please don't write it off. This is for you. Seek your Savior and seek his people. Receive investment. Pray for it. And see how God might use it not only to nourish your wandering heart, and I have one of those too, but to use you to love and lead others towards freedom in Christ. And if you're in the room and you are reciprocating investment today, uh, let these examples from Scripture encourage you that your time is not spent in vain. And whether you're receiving or giving, it matters. 
It, it, like, it matters eternally. And so gospel-centered leaders reciprocate investment. Lastly, gospel-centered leaders grow intentionally. They grow intentionally. And let's, let's go to the text first to see this. So Paul said, I'm reminded of your sincere faith. And in verse 6, continues. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us not a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. This is actually really practical information, like even outside of a spiritual context. So for example, I'm not the greatest at starting fires. I know you're thinking, dude, even cavemen could start fires. That's like being homo sapiens sapiens 101. But every time I'm elected to start a fire, uh, I'm reminded of that soul-crushing detail because I always underestimate it. And so I'll find myself kind of standing, uh, especially outdoors if it's like a bonfire, and, and shuffling around the place where there's supposed to be a fire. And I don't know if you can relate to this, but then your friends kind of form a circle of social pressure around you in their lawn chairs. Uh, and you have a lighter, that's supposed to help. But even the lighter takes work, especially if there's wind. You'll kind of be like, kind of trying to start it, but pressing the button doesn't matter how much, like, however much you angle it. You might even have better luck just kind of going old-fashioned and getting two sticks, rubbing them together, see what kind of heat you can generate. And so after two or three minutes, I might pause to stretch my back and look down, and I'll have one dead leaf smoking, no fire. And beyond my lack of ruggedness, what do I need to remember about how fire works? Well, a fire doesn't just erupt and burn fiercely because you held a lighter on a stick for five seconds. It, it actually, it takes effort to guard and to guide that little flame so that the heat can spread and glow through your forest brush and then catch onto your sticks and finally light up your logs. So it takes deliberate, ongoing effort. And I think this picture is what it means when Paul says, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God. In fact, the word in Greek is a nasopureo, which might sound like a trendy protein shake, but it actually means to rekindle and feed and grow a fire. And it's a present tense verb, which means you keep on doing it. It's nonstop. Paul says godly gifts are like fire. You have to work to keep them alive, to keep them ablaze, to make the most out of them. And in Timothy's case and ours also, this means to cultivate our gifts and use them passionately for the kingdom. So if you feed and grow the gift just like a fire, it becomes stronger and more effective. And if you don't, it dwindles and becomes ineffective. And I think this is one of those critical kingdom principles, physics, to understand. If you're not feeding the fire, it's not a sign that you are coasting, but that you are withering. As Tony Marita put it, there's no room for sluggishness in the Christian life. Rest? Yes. But laziness, passiveness, and timidity should not characterize the believer. Why? Why is that? Well, because just like the fire, if you don't work it and feed it, it goes out. And to be clear, the fire is not your faith this morning. It's not your salvation. No, the fire is your ability to function meaningfully. It's your effectiveness. And the Apostle Peter, 
actually, in 2 Peter 1.8, puts it like this. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful. Another rendering puts it, to keep growing like this is to keep you from becoming useless or unfruitful. And so the Bible is actually clear about this all over, that this has to do with contribution. Okay, just another reminder. It's not, it doesn't have to do with your value or human dignity. It's just that if you're not cultivating what you've been given and if there's no growth, then you open the door to becoming unfruitful and eventually useless in function kind of a shell of what you once were or could be. And no one is immune to this. I'm not immune to this. Chris isn't. David Platt isn't immune to this. John Piper is not immune to this. If we don't exercise our gifts, just like our muscles actually, if you work out for 10 years in a row and experience massive gains and then you just stop working out for 10 years and sit on the couch and eat potato chips, like will you keep any of your peak muscle gains from the 10 years prior? No. They'll all vanish. They once were strong and prominent, now they're weak and invisible and useless. That's the hard truth. And it's not hard because it's confusing, and it's not hard because it's meant to make you feel guilty or to feel hardened. It's hard because it actually requires you and it actually requires me to depend on the gospel to actually draw our strength from Christ, to actually do what scripture calls us to do as Christians, to pray for faith, to depend on the gospel, power to exercise our gifts, to grow as people, to reflect Jesus in our service to others. That's hard stuff. That's really hard stuff. But take heart, Christian, because that which God requires, he has also already provided. For Paul says, God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And that, that is our point of relief this morning, that you could be timid, you could be frail, you could be young and inexperienced, fleeing responsibility, especially in caring for others, and you would be just like Timothy, afraid to lose more than you could gain, afraid to lose more for Christ than you could gain from the world. But that's a lie from hell. God didn't give you a spirit of fear, Christian. He gave you himself on a splintered wooden cross. He bore the wrath stored up for you and me and paying for our sins on the cross, he then rose to conquer death. And by faith in his life and his perfect work, we are also raised to a permanent promise of new life with him. And with that come power, love, and self-discipline. It's in the text, the power to overcome sin and live rightly the love to share both the gospel and your life with others, the self-discipline, the self-control to do this more and more as you grow in the knowledge of Christ. So I want us to walk away with clarity here this morning that the grace of God is meant to be coupled with our willful growth. And our examples of Christian leaders show us that today. It was Paul that said, God's grace has made me who I am, and it was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than anyone. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. Grace and growth. For young Timothy, it was exactly the same. Timothy was brought to Christ in faith, says John Stott, but still himself stirred up the divine gift within him. He had to add his own self-discipline 
to God's gifts. Stott then says, we are no different. However much or little we may have received from God, either directly in natural or spiritual endowment or indirectly through parents, friends, and teachers, we must still apply ourselves in active self-discipline to cooperate with God's grace, to keep fanning the inner fire into flame. Otherwise, we shall never be the men and women God wants us to be or fulfill the ministry he has given us to exercise. So last word here. If, if you don't know Jesus this morning, I can tell you based on the authority of God's word and my conscious experience and the conscious experience of many others here and around the world that Jesus is exactly who he says he is. He is the son of God. And there is no one else who can save us and empower us to be the men and women we were designed to be than Christ himself. And it is freeing and it is satisfying to know and follow this savior. Today can be the day you decide to, uh, in faith, to turn to him and to leave behind the fleeting things of this world, which I promise you will never satisfy, and receive the promise of new life in Christ and to flourish in ways that only God can make happen. If you want to know more about that, you can, you can let us, uh, you can please let us know. Uh, any of the elders or staff here, anyone you see on stage, or a trusted friend, um, if you're listening online, you can even fill out a digital connection card. And for the Christian today, let me say this. You have a unique place in God's church. You have a unique place in your social circles and among your loved ones. And you have a purpose with God-given gifts and God-ordained roles to play. Please, don't miss out on this. Join Paul. Join Timothy. Join the church and depend on the gospel reciprocate investment, and grow intentionally. You, you won't look back and wish that you had given less to this, I promise you. But be the men and women God wants you to be and fulfill the ministry that he will give you to exercise. And we'll close with that. Let's pray. Father, we are amazed that a holy God would want to have anything to do with us. Yet Jesus demonstrated on the cross that you actually want everything to do with us. God, you want our whole heart and life. So in Christ this morning, please release us from guilt or indifference and instead shower us, Lord, with grace and peace, with power and love and self-control. And help us to understand, God, uh, through others, through your word, and through prayer, where we need to grow, even the simplest steps that we can take in that direction. And ultimately, God, help us be good ambassadors of the gospel you've entrusted to us, that by Christ in me and in them, we would be walking billboards of your gospel, that others may come to know you and that you may be glorified. And we pray this in the beautiful name of your son, Jesus. Amen.